Today we have a very special program. One of our favorite things here at The Scholar is to introduce debut authors to our literary community. So you're in for a real treat with a couple of our favorites from the past year. At this time, I'm gonna introduce our moderator for this evening who's gonna introduce our authors. Sheila Jane Menon's research centers on questions of race and identity in Malaysian literature and culture and is informed by her own upbringing in Malaysia, Singapore, and Honolulu. In the classroom, she teaches post-colonial Asian American and world literature focusing in particular on how texts are shaped by histories of colonization, decolonization, and migration. Her work has been published in Ariel, a review of international English literature, The Conversation, and The Malaysian Insider. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Sheila Jane Menon to the stage. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being here. Uh, my thanks to Alex and the entire team at the Midtown Scholar for all the energy they've invested in making this annual book festival such a vibrant and dynamic event. Um, I'm especially grateful as an assistant professor of English at Dickinson College um, to be asked to moderate the conversation this evening between debut novelists Aro Kwan and Joanne Ramos. For English professors and literature nerds, this is like the dream to get to talk to authors about their work in public spaces and in gorgeous bookstores. Aro Kwan is a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Festival, uh, excuse me, Literature Fellow. The Incendiaries is her first novel, and it was named a Best Book of the Year by over 40 publications. Her writing has been published in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Paris Review, BuzzFeed, New York Magazine, and NPR, among others. Born in South Korea, she has lived most of her life in the United States. And The Incendiaries has been lauded as, quote, a slim and powerful novel with menace and mystery lurking in every corner. Another review writes, it is a dark and absorbing story of how first love can be as intoxicating and dangerous as religious fundamentalism. From my reading, I would add that the novel is also an intimate and lyrical meditation on faith, trauma, and the search for truth. Joanne Ramos was born in the Philippines and moved to Wisconsin when she was six. She graduated with a BA from Princeton University. After working in investment banking and private equity investing for several years, she became a staff writer at The Economist. She lives in New York City with her husband and three children. Her novel, The Farm, has been described as, quote, equal parts feminist dystopia and immigrant story, and, quote, a fierce indictment of the vampiric nature of modern capitalism. From my reading, I would add that it is also a powerful and nuanced examination of women's voices and women's choices, and of the ways in which race and class profoundly shape women's agency. Please join me in welcoming Joanne and Aro to the Midtown Scholar. Hi, hello. Thank you so much for being here, um, and thank you to Midtown Scholar, um, and thank you to Sheila for that, for that really lovely introduction. Um, and thank you to the festival. I'm so excited to be back. I was here in August um, as part of my paperback book tour, and um, I said then, and I say it now, but please don't tell anyone else I said so. I think this is like the most beautiful bookstore in America. <laughs> don't tell any of the other bookstores. What happens in Midtown Scholar stays in Midtown Scholar. But this place is amazing, you know? Like, I love that this is like your bookstore. You could just... You can just come here all the time. That's incredible. Um, anyway, um, okay. So I'm going to read from. Well, I'm going to read from *The Incendiaries*. It's my first novel. Um, and uh, before I read from it, though, um, I'll tell you just a little bit about it. So, um, 
Let's see. What I usually tell people that the novel's about is, I say it's about a woman who gets involved with a group of radical Christians, um, extremist Christians. The group turns out to be a cult, and they end up bombing abortion clinics, healthcare clinics, in the name of faith. Um, so I worked on this book for 10 years, um, pretty much every day for 10 years. And uh, so that means that for 10 years, I attended a lot of um, parties and dinner parties and worst of all Thanksgivings at which people would ask what I do. And I would say, I write, I'm working on a novel. Um, and very naturally they would ask what it's about. And I would tell them pretty much the same sort of uh, spiel that I just gave y'all now. Um, and by far the most common follow-up question for 10 years was, is your novel autobiographical? Which, um, which I never quite knew what to do with, because I always felt as though, I was like, are you asking me if, um, if I've been in a violent extremist cult? If I've led a violent extremist cult? Um, and or have I blown up a bunch of buildings? And the short answer is no, I haven't um, blown up anything just yet. Um, but there is a longer possible answer about um, what led to this book, like what obsessions and losses of my own fed this book. And so I grew up so Christian um, that my entire life plan until I was 17 was to become a pastor. Um, and, and then I lost that faith. And for me, it was, it was devastating um, in a lot of ways. Um, First of all, there was the loss of, of the God whom I loved so much that I'd really planned on devoting my life to his service. Um, and I say he because it was sort of like the traditional notion of a Christian God. Um, and, and, and there was a secondary, also enormous loss of um, all my friends and family at the time pretty much were, were Christian, were believers. Um, and so I lost a lot of those ties. And then a year later, I went off to college um, where almost all of my new friends had pretty much no experience of religion. Um, they had maybe been to like Easter once with their grandmother and thought it was super boring. Um, and so when I, I would tell all my new friends, you know, like until a year ago, I was super Christian. I thought I was going to be a pastor. Um, and my friends across the board were just like, huh, that's really weird. Um, and they were like, well, you know, good for you. You're out. You're free. Welcome to the land of the living. Now you can dr drink and have sex like the rest of us. Um, I was always like, well, yeah, that's true, that's true. Um, I, I can drink now, and drinking has turned out to be lovely. Um, but I, it, it didn't feel like a liberation for me. It felt like, it felt and feels like the pivotal, defining loss of my life around which my life feels organized. Like my life feels split into a before and after. And in a lot of ways, I feel as though I'm living in the aftermath, the aftermath of grief. Um, and so I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about how terrible it was to lose this faith and this God that I love so much. Um, and I also wanted to write about how wonderful it was to believe. And I also, over time, I started realizing that a lot of people only ever exist on um, one part of the faith spectrum, you know? Like, a lot of people know exactly what it is to believe in an overarching deity. A lot of people, like, that's so far from their comprehension. Um, and, and it can be very hard to speak across that divide when you have such a fundamentally different understanding of how the world works. Um, it can be very hard to have any dialogue um, across such a wide gulf. And so I wanted to write a book that could perhaps serve as an imaginative bridge across that gulf that could, that could depict varieties of belief, um, varieties of religious experiences. Um, so all of that said, I'm going to read very briefly from this book. Um, and, and, then, and then we'll talk about it after we hear from Joanne. One will. They'd have gathered on a rooftop in Knoxhurst to watch the explosion. 
Platt Hall, I think, 11 floors up. I know his ego, and he'd have picked the tallest point he could. So often, I've imagined how they felt waiting. With six minutes left, the slant light of dusk reddened the high old spires of the college, the level gables of its surrounding town. They poured festive wine into big-bellied glasses. Handshaking, they laughed. She would sit apart from this reveling group, cross-legged on the roof's west ledge. Three minutes to go, two, one. The Phipps building fell. Smoke plumed the breath of God. Silence followed, then the group's shouts of triumph. Wine glasses clashed together, flashing martial light. He sang the first bars of a Cheja psalm. Others soon joined in. Carolyn bells chimed, distant birds blowing white, strewn like dandelion tufts, an outsized wish. It must have been then that John Leo came to her side. In his bare feet, he closed his arm around her shoulders. She flinched, looking up at him. I can imagine how he'd have tightened his hold, telling her she'd done well, though before long it would be time to act again, to do a little more. But this is where I start having trouble, Phoebe. Buildings fell. People died. You once told me I hadn't even tried to understand. So here I am, trying. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. Hello. Uh, thank you to everyone for coming today. Um, so my book is called The Farm. It's also my debut novel. Uh, and when I started writing the book, um, I was in my 40s, or I just turned 40. And I actually hadn't written fiction in over 20 years since I was in college. And um, it was something I'd always loved to do, but it never seemed very practical to do it. So it was very new to me. It was very much a process of trial and error, the five years that I was kind of trying to come up with an idea and working on it. But the ideas behind the book were not new, right? They were, they were from this stew of ideas I felt since I was a kid um, that are really rooted in this feeling that I've always straddled worlds. And I think a lot of people probably feel that way. Um, I was born in the Philippines, and we moved to Wisconsin when I was six in the 1970s, which is a really different time in America. Um, it was a smallish town, a little smaller than Harrisburg. And, you know, I would spend my, my days feeling pretty different because my sister and I were two of four Asians in our public elementary school of like 600 kids. But on the weekends, we would spend it with my dad's family nearby, and they were part of a really tight Filipino community about 30 minutes away. So I felt both being part of something bigger and really not being part of anything at all. And then I got to Princeton. I felt I straddled those worlds. Like Princeton was a, it was a dream come true for my family, I have to say, but, and for me. But it was the first place that I really encountered not just money, like not just wealth, but class. I remember a party I went to, it was one of the first parties I went to at Princeton where someone asked me, after I'd told him I'm from Wisconsin, where do you summer? And I was like, because I didn't know it was a verb, first of all, because that's not how we do that in Wisconsin. But I just told him I was in Wisconsin, from Wisconsin. I'm like, well, I spend all my seasons there. I don't know um, what you're really talking about. Uh, and although I'm flipping about it now, when I was 18, as an 18-year-old without a lot of money in a school that was so wealthy where people, my friends had never had jobs and never, never need to have jobs and could take those awesome internships that were unpaid, um, I felt a lot of shame about not 
understanding the language and not being able to take the internships and having to work over spring break instead of going on vacations. And so I went into Wall Street after college because I was like, I want to pay off this debt and I want to make, learn how to make, how, how the world works and make money. And it was a great experience. It was also another straddling of worlds because there aren't that many women in Wall Street back then. And I took a job in finance, high finance after private equity where I was the first woman that they'd hired. They had a lot of women there on the administrative staff and none as an investor. And so that was a straddling of worlds. Um, not just being the only woman in all the bo um, board meetings and things, but also trying not to alienate the women who are already there. And it's funny because I actually asked my husband about this recently. Have you ever taken a new job and wanted to do really well and just part of the worry was trying not to alienate or wanting the other people there to like you and not alienate them? He's like, I've never, I've never felt that way. <laughs> so I think it might be a female thing or maybe just me, but anyway. And then the real kind of triggering, triggering of the book was that when I was raising my three kids in Manhattan after a career in finance, in a very different way than I was raised in a different, different lifestyle, it occurred to me that the only Filipinas I knew um, in my orbit of the parks and playdates were the nannies and baby nurses and housekeepers of my children, and not my children and their friends. And, um, and the part that really got me is that so many of these women became my friends, not so many, some became my great friends, many became my acquaintances, and, but I was told dozens of times you're the American dream, you've made it. Oh, your kids are so lucky. You're, oh, you're, you're, oh, I wish we were smart like you. Oh, I wish we got to Princeton like you. And the truth is, there's something to meritocracy, but it's also a lot that's untrue about meritocracy. And the idea that these women felt that my success was due to my merit only and my hard work and their lack of success was due to something they did wrong was so untrue that I couldn't, that is what I wanted to write about. So my book is about it was a year and a half until I got the idea of writing really terrible stuff, but I finally came upon this idea of creating a luxury surrogacy facility. So it is the fanciest spa that you've ever been to. It's got gourmet chefs, and you get private yoga instruction, and it's all for free. In fact, you get paid huge, huge amounts of money for working there. And the only catch is you can't leave the grounds, your every move is monitored, and you're kind of totally cut off from everyone you love as you carry the baby for the richest people in the world. And it's called the farm. It's called Golden Oaks, the farm. Um, and a lot of stuff ensues at this farm. Um, I have four narrators. I'm just going to read a tiny snippet of one of the narrators. Two of my narrators are hosts at the farm, so they've signed up to carry babies. One's from the Philippines. One is a more privileged woman who went to Duke University, um, a white woman, uh, the woman who runs the farm, and then this lady named Ate. Ate means uh, big sister in Tagalog, which is the language of my country, the Philippines. And she's a baby nurse, and she's inspired by three women I've gotten to know very well who in their 70s are still baby nursing, and they're like the Upper East Side baby whisperers in New York City. They can get your baby sleeping through the night in six weeks, and they charge you a lot of money, and all these people buzzed about them. And so this is Ate. She just collapsed on a baby nurse job. She's almost 70. And she, for other reasons, she gets paid double rate for this job, so she doesn't want to let it go. So she's trying to convince her much younger cousin, who later becomes a host at the farm, to take over the job. But of course, her younger cousin has never been a baby nurse, so Ate has to get her up to speed fast so she doesn't F things up, because it's a really great job. This is what Ate tells Jane, in a voice that is urgent, because they do not have much time. You must wear a uniform. If mine do not fit you, most likely they will not. You are still fat from the baby. Then you must go to the uniform store, the one on Queens Boulevard. I will pay. Buy two or three, the kind with matching pants, but only pants with big pockets for the pacifier and the milk, the aspirator, things like that. The baby is not yet sleep trained, so expect to work all day and also all night. When do you sleep? When the baby sleeps, of course, but only in the evenings. During the day, if the mother or father is around, you must stay busy, even if the baby is napping. Otherwise, you will look lazy. 
Sundays are the day off, but for the first week, you should not take it. Mrs. Carter will insist, but you must refuse. Tell her you prefer to stay and get to know baby Henry. She will always remember this. She will tell Mr. Carter, and they will be pleased you are my replacement. You will miss Amalia, I forgot to say. Jane has to leave her newborn baby at home to take this job. You will miss Amalia. I understand this. I will send you pictures, many videos, but you must only check them in your room. You see the babysitters from the islands on their phones at the playground not watching the children? Do not be like that. You do not get double rate for being like that. I will tell Dina, the housekeeper, you are coming. She will help you find what you need, cabbage. The leaves are good for when the mother's milk duct gets plugged. Lactation tea, the mother should drink it several times a day. Multivitamins also every day. A beer called Guinness, this is good for milk production. But Jane, speak to Dina only in English, no Tagalog, even if the parents are in a different room. Otherwise, they're uneasy. They feel like strangers in their home. Oh, I do not mean to scare you, Jane. Mrs. Carter and Mr. Carter are very nice. It is only that you need to show respect. They will tell you to call them Kate and Ted, very American, very equal, but it is always sir and ma'am. They will tell you to make yourself at home, but they do not want you to make yourself at home because it is their home, not yours, and they are not your friends. They are your clients, only that. Mrs. Carter, she is the type of mother who feels guilty. She likes to be with her baby, but she thinks she likes to be with her baby more than she likes to be with him. Do you understand? And this makes her guilty because she believes love and time are the same. But that is not true. I have not seen Roy or Romuela or Isabel or Ellen in many years, but my love for my children is the same. Mrs. Carter does not understand this, so she is guilty. Guilty if she leaves the baby for half the day to do her haircut. Guilty when she learns her friend did the breastfeeding longer. Be careful of the guilt, Jane. Do not allow it. At times, Mrs. Carter will tell you, I will take Henry. Go nap. You were up all night. But most likely, she's only feeling guilty about you. You must give her an excuse to leave the baby. For example, you can say, it is time for the baby's bath. Or in a joking voice, you can say, can I have a turn with Mr. Handsome now? If she insists she wants him, okay, okay. But then the baby must be full of milk, already burped and happy, not hungry or tired in a crying mood. If he fusses with her, she might get jealous. This can happen if the baby smiles at you more, if he is comforted by you faster. And you must stay nearby, one ear always listening, but not just standing, always busy washing bottles, folding clothes. Otherwise, the mother begins to resent you for only taking up space while she is the one with the baby. The father? Oh, he is working at a bank. He works very hard, very long hours. Keep your distance, Jane. Be polite, but do not look him in the eyes and do not smile at him. Oh, no, no, he is nothing like your Billy. But Mrs. Carter, she is still fat from the baby, too. And you are young and pretty. Thank you. Thank you both for those readings and for giving us a window into these two beautiful novels and into the sort of context that you use to shape and create these texts. Um, I'd like to start first with a question about structure and narration. So both your novels have chapters that rotate between different characters, right? Um, and in yours, R.O. Will, if I'm understanding correctly, is the primary narrator, but the chapters focus on different characters. And as you said, um, Joanne, we move through chapters in your book focusing on Jane, May, Reagan, and Ati. So as readers, really, in both these novels, we're moving through different points of view, different timelines. How did you arrive at this narrative structure? Um, and what other options, if any, did you consider along the way? And were there particular rewards or challenges to taking this ap approach to structuring um, the voices of your novels. Um, so the first two years that I worked on um, The Incendiaries, um, 
The novel is narrated entirely by um, the woman who gets involved with the cult, Phoebe Lynn. Um, and, uh, and then I found that, so at, at, the, at the end of those two years, um, I had just sort of uh, been reworking the first 20 pages over and over again, pretty much every day um, for several hours a day. Um, I threw it all away at the end, um, and I started again with the same characters. And I found that there was something about hanging out only in Phoebe's point of view that, um, for me, with this book, felt a little too restricting in that, so she goes through a great deal. I don't think I'm giving away too much at all if I say um, that she feels that she loses a great, she, well, she loses a great deal, and then she feels that she gains a great deal. Um, so her experience of the world is very spiky. You know, there's a lot of up and a lot of down really fast. Um, and I started thinking about what all the books that are, that are narrated primarily by someone who's not at the center of the action. And so an obvious example that comes to mind um, and that I thought about a lot is The Great Gatsby, of course, which is narrated by someone um, who, someone who is at the, has like far from the center of the action as possible. Um, almost every person in that book is more involved with what's going on um, than Nick Carraway is. And I found that having Will, so the person you heard from in the first chapter, Will um, loves Phoebe um, and opposes the cult and much of what it represents. And having him narrate the book of the book, um, it, it did something where it just opened up the space of the, of the book. Like it felt as though a lot of air w was being brought into the room. Um, I was able to play with a lot of different emotional registers that way. Um, so from years two to six, um, he, was the, he was the only narrator. Um, and at the six year mark, my agent um, took a look at it and she thought, I would never have made the change if she hadn't, if she hadn't agreed with me. Um, that's something I always want to say to people who are working on books, people who are writers, you never have to do anything anyone tells you, like it's your book. Um, um, but I found that I wildly agreed with her when she said there just wasn't enough of the cult. And so that was when the cult leader's point of view started coming in. So, and then at the like seven and a half year mark, I showed it to her after I'd done all that. And then um, she was like, I just, I just feel as though there isn't enough of Phoebe yet. And I was like, God damn it. So <laughs> that was, those were those, tw um, those two years that I'd thrown away. But I realized, again, I agreed with her. I realized there was a lot I knew about Phoebe that wasn't necessarily showing up on the page. Um, so that was when I started adding back her point of view. Um, and yeah, so, so it wasn't, um, it wasn't, none of it was really planned. It all, it all sort of it, it happened eventually over time. And I, would, I totally agree with that mine was Definitely not planned. Um, it was um, my cliche 40-year-old midlife crisis when I decided I was going to commit to writing a book when my kids were in school. I have three children. When my kids were at school, I would give myself two hours a day, Monday to Friday, to write. And in that first year and a half, the story I wanted to tell was about a young Filipina who left her baby daughter at home to take care of someone else's kids. And that's because so many of the women that I got to know in the parks of Tribeca, which is where I live, um, Almost all of them were mothers, and many of them had left their kids back in the Philippines or Pakistan or Mexico or wherever to give their kids a better life by raising my kids and other people's kids in America. Um, my kids when I was still at The Economist, but still. Um, and so that's, that was the story, and it wasn't working. Same thing. I was just like rewriting and trying and trying and, and writing really bad. I don't know. It was just so, it was like a, a matter of persistence and faith, I think, that year and a half or two before. I happened to read a little article in my husband's Wall Street Journal. It was three paragraphs long, and it was about a surrogacy facility in India. 
These things no longer exist in India. They're banned because of all this abuse, but they still exist in the Ukraine and South Africa and other places, and they're not luxury. And the women only stay there starting at 30 weeks or so. But that's what started the what-ifs that became the farm. And once that happened, then all of a sudden I was like, well, I want to write about what it feels like to run the farm. I want to write about what it feels like to be a host, meaning a surrogate, if you're not totally constrained in your choices and why you do that. And some of the reasons I wanted to do that is, again, one of the big impetuses of my book was feeling like I have been and tried to fit in on different sides of so many divides. And I found it interesting to meet friends of mine who I really feel look straight through the women who help them raise their kids. They're not bad to them, they just don't see them. In a very similar way, in my writing group, which I signed up for three years into writing the book because I was lonely and I didn't know what I was doing, in Ditmas Park in Brooklyn, I would bring up how I wanted to write May Yu, the character who runs the farm, a successful businesswoman. They're like, well, anyone in business is evil. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I used to be in business and I don't think that's true either. And I think especially in the polarized climate that we're in now, we don't even see each other. We don't even, like we box each other, we don't even see each other. And so the, the one thing I did on purpose, the rest of it just kind of happened through trial and error in my book, is that I, I wanted to make fully fleshed, nuanced characters, four of them, from very different sides of these divides, and, and hope that no one would read them as villains or saints, because I just don't believe the world is that simple. I, I really have met very few, I've actually met no villains. I meet people I don't like, and I don't like their choices, and yet then they're good dads, and they give money to certain causes, and they, you know, it's just so complicated, and I, and I wanted the book to be complicated, and that's why I couldn't stay in one person's perspective. Um, you know, both your responses about imagining characters and worlds and experiences from multiple point of, points of view, I think, um, takes us nicely to my next question. Um, both your novels walk a really fine line between depicting forms of suffering, violence, trauma, oppression, um, especially as experienced by the women characters in your novels, and then creating women characters who are as you've both suggested, complex, powerful, and agentic. How were you thinking about walking or writing along that very difficult line throughout the writing process? It sounds like the narrative structure was one way to sort of navigate that difficulty, um, but was this a concern for you as you worked on this text? How to produce women characters that are really complex and dynamic, but who are also um, experiencing these really horrific, traumatic experiences over the course of the text? So I, you know, it's, it's funny, I, I, if you think of the characters in my book, again, there are four of them. Um, the two hosts who decide to work at the farm weren't forced to work at the farm. Right, and so actually one of, it's in, I'm, I'm, kind, I'm really glad you brought this up because one of the questions I wanted to interrogate was, and why I dispute all the comparisons to Handmaid's Tale that were especially made in the UK by my <laughs> publisher, but reviewers and all this stuff, is that these women were not forced to, they, they chose, they thought they could make their lives better, or in the case of Reagan, the, the white graduate from Duke, who's um, one of the main characters, she chose it for her own reasons. And I actually, for me, that was the question I was more interested in. It was the question of, because I would have these arguments with my dad, who since passed away growing up, he was a real, the immigrant who came, the good immigrant who came and made it and believed everyone could make it if they just tried harder. Like he really <laughs> believed that and we would get in these fights growing up. And he always said, and I learned in Econ 101, that free trade is defined as um, 
a mutually agreed upon decision that benefits both parties. Because if it doesn't benefit both parties, they wouldn't make that trade. That is the basis of, 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 of free trade according to normal economics. And is that true? Is it fair? Is the farm fair just because no one put a gun to these women's head? Or would you say that maybe their choices were so constrained or life is so unequal or life is so, um, has been so unfair to them and their kids in the beginning that they didn't really have free will in that, in that question? And so when you say writing about barbaric or hard acts, it's in, I, I, want, I don't want to say because I like people to interpret my characters themselves, but I wonder if some of these women I think do feel they're being abused. Mm -hmm. um, some people feel like they're doing what they need to do for their kids. And it, it's really the women of privilege who feel like they're being abused, and the women who don't have very much privilege, meaning Jane, the baby nurses who have to work there for their children, who are doing it because they feel they have to. And I don't think they even have the luxury to think of it that way, um, personally. Thanks. Um, I, think, I think in some ways, um, well, so most of this book takes place on a college campus. Um, and in my experience of college, as well as my experience of life, um, the threat of sexual, so there, there, there's, you know, a question I've gotten a few times, I actually wrote a piece about it, um, is why, why is there, why is there so much sexual violence in your book? Like, it's like, it's in the background, it's part of, it, it's also part of the foreground, um, and, and I just don't think I could have written a book set on a college campus that didn't factor in um, the high incidence of, of sexual violence on college campuses in America. Um, and yeah, I, I, I wrote a piece about this because at some point, um, this is right after the Kavanaugh hearings, um, I started noticing just for like one week, I took, I, I, I tallied everything I did, just, not, just on a normal week, nothing bad happened really. Um, everything I did instinctively and sometimes not instinctively um, to try to avoid being assaulted. Emphasis on the try because of course, no matter, no matter how much you, no matter what preventative, um, uh, no matter what preventative things you do, you're, you're, you can't necessarily forestall um, what someone else wants to do. Um, but you know, just like the little things, like never get in a car without looking in the back, always check the lift, um, always check the lift license, make sure it's the right one. Um, never walk home from my subway station, which is a 12 minute walk from my apartment after 9 p.m. because after 9 p.m. the streets are kind of deserted and, um, and the lights aren't, aren't very bright and a few years ago, there was a serial, serial rapist in my neighborhood. Just like all those things. And I was like, there are like 30 things I do over the course of a day because I'm, because in, with this like ongoing, exhausting act of, um, of, of being wrapped up in the project of my personal safety. And I think a lot of that did make its way into my book. Um, I, don't, I feel as though it wouldn't have been truthful to write a book um, that did not include that kind of, that did not include that kind of trauma inside the book set on a college campus in America. Thank you. Um, I think if we're talking about trauma and agency in both your novels, we also have to talk about the ways in which both novels um, talk through, think through, write through the ways in which lies and manipulation and half-truths impact sort of everyday lives and choices, right? Um, I was struck, especially as I moved from your book, Aro, to yours, Joanne, that different forms of lies and manipulation kept coming up. And in both your texts, were pivotal to key moments in the plot or to turns and shifts in the plot. Um, could you talk a little bit about why questions of truth and deception were so important in the creation of your characters and the worlds and choices that they struggle to navigate? Hmm. 
Well, I've never been asked that before. <laughs> um, so like so many things in my book, it wasn't necessarily a plan. Um, I think, I mean, thinking right now, as I, I'm saying what I'm thinking stream of consciously, because I've never been asked that, I think some of it is that um, because of the subjects I was exploring, or something I think about are the lies that we tell ourselves to be able to, for me, for instance, walk down the streets of Manhattan and pass 12 people who are homeless on the way and still think I'm a good person, and I, and I don't stop anymore, usually, right? Um, uh, or if I do, I give a buck here or there, I'm not, you know. And, and I feel like in the farm, there are some subset of people there who are, their lie they believe in. May you runs the farm. She actually believes it's a win-win. She actually believes that they're allowing very, very, very wealthy people to have a family, which is a wonderful thing to do. And we're giving these poor women without very many choices um, a chance to change their lives, as long as they have perfect babies. Um, and she really does believe that, and I feel that I don't want to give away some of the lies that become very integral to the plot of the book, but I think in, in, in for Ate and for Reagan and for they they also believe these lies and 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 tell other lies and tell other lies and and sometimes it's on purpose to manipulate, but sometimes it's just because they really believe it. They really believe they're helping other people, and that's why they have to sort of massage the truth to make it happen. And relatedly, but separately, I do think that to market capitalism. And it's not that I don't believe capitalism has its role, but there is a lot of line that goes on just to make people feel good about the system we're in. Like every green smoothie you buy actually isn't just a drink, but it's going to make you be energized and revitalized and soulful and zen. And in fact, I can't even buy vitamin water because I get so confused by the choices. I'm like, I do need more zen today, but then I'd like to be energetic and I'd like to be creative. Like, which drink do I take? Like, we market all of this. I just tried to buy Kleenex at JFK when I was going to my book tour in Australia, and even Kleenexes now are like, live your best life. I'm like, yes, I do want to live my best life. But those are, maybe lies is too strong, right? But there's a story in there, and, I, and the farm definitely does that, how it pitches itself to these women who don't have many choices and to the wealthy people who choose to, to, to have their babies there is. This is a win. This is a great thing for everyone. And you don't have to feel guilty about a system that's super unequal because it's actually really good for everyone. Um, yeah, I love that question. You know, there's something that the writer um, Viet Thanh Nguyen, um, who wrote The Sympathizer, he won a Pulitzer a few years ago. Um, so he, he said something that I love, he just, um, and he said something about how like, all immigrant children, um, because we have to lie to our parents about so much, um, have, the, have it in them to become excellent fic fiction writers. <laughs> We've been telling fictions from the minute we were, from the minute we started going to school. Um, <laughs> And I love that a lot, but um, yeah, no, I think I, I think there is a lot of um, lying in my book, and a lot of the ways in which people are very concerned about how they present themselves to others. And I think part of it, um, part of it has to do with I have an abiding fascination with the differences between how we see ourselves, how, so how, how I, as a person, see myself, versus how other people will have seen me during the course of the day, and the ways in which that those stories are are so different and the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. Um, and I think about this most often when like, I'm out in the world and feeling irritated, which is, um, which is, which is not infrequently. Um, uh, so, so you know, like if I'm on the sidewalk and there are four people walking abreast of me and they're blocking the sidewalk, um, my usual reaction is of like towering rage because, oh my God, you're blocking the sidewalk. What is wrong with you people? Can you not walk two and two like normal people? 
Um, and I just like get so angry, but, I, um, but I'm, I'm, it's an ongoing project for myself to remind myself, um, you know, there are people too, they have some, they, were, they are not doing this to deliberately ruin <laughs> these, but these, this minute of my life. Like they're not trying to be jerks. Um, they're just talking, they're having a good time. They're as fully human to themselves as I am to myself. Um, and I think that's the part of what I really love about literature is over and over and over getting to inhabit the minds of people who aren't you. Like, I mean, as much as I love movies um, and you know music concerts, and so as much as all of it, nothing gives you that like direct access to the inside of someone else's head the way books do. Um, and that's that's part of what I really love about fiction. Um, so this is the last question I'll ask you both, and then we'll open up questions from the audience. Um, both your novels are invested, you know, I think as you've already begun to speak to, are invested in thinking through divisions of different kinds and the ways they permeate everyday life and relationships. Um, class, I think, is a central boundary of both your novels, and you've both spoke to that a little bit today. But I would add to that, of course, boundaries of race, of faith, of gender, of sexuality. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you navigated across and between different boundaries, different kinds of human divisions in the course of writing this novel? Um, so by that I mean did particular divisions, particular boundaries and their ramifications become more or less compelling for you as you moved through different drafts of these novels or different sections of different drafts of these novels? Hmm. That's such an interesting question. Um, I feel as though, I don't know that I've been asked that before. Um, let's see, I think part of it, let's see. I was thinking about part of why this sort of three-part structure was so appealing to me with people, with people sort of like telling bits of their stories in different ways um, is that I think I am fascinated by these divisions between any two humans, like all the ways in which we surprise one another. Um, there is a, uh, there's such a, and even with like the people we know best, right? Um, there's such a beautiful book written by the writer um, C.S. Lewis, who is of course um, the writer of the like Lion, the Wardrobe, the Witch books, and he's also um, a Christian writer. But my favorite book of his is um, A Grief Observed, which he wrote like not long after his wife died. And, um, and he loved his wife, and this book is heartbreaking. Um, and he, one of the things he says is he's so sick of people telling him, well, you have your memories. And he says, I don't want my memories. What I loved about my, part of what I loved about living with my wife is that every day she surprised me. What I want back is all the ways in which she can surprise me and I'll never get that again. Um, and I think that, I thought that was so beautiful because it's so true. Like even, so my husband, like we've been married since college. Um, I've known him for, what year is it? 16, oh my God, yeah, like 15 years or something. <laughs> Jesus Christ, um, that's a really long time. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and he's, you know, and like every day he still startles me with something new, um, with multiple new things. And I think that, 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 that the books, like, like books are so good at portraying some of those, um, some of those divisions. And with this book, I wanted to make some of those divisions explicit um, by physically separating out like who was narrating what. Thank you. Uh, I also think it's, uh, it's just something I've been thinking a lot about a lot more since I've been on book tour since May, how, um, how disarming fiction is, right? Because I, I know there's this whole, there is a movement in fiction towards autofiction, and um, I have had some people say, oh, I don't read fiction because it's made up. I like to read nonfiction and memoir. I'm like, okay, thanks for, I mean, I just told you I wrote a debut novel, but that's fine. Um, 
but uh, but as I've thought about storytelling more because of this process of talking to so many people about it, I, I do believe that there are very few ways to disarm someone as readily as having them read fiction because fiction is made up. The very fact that it's made up means that whoever buys it is willing to take that leap of faith, right? If I were to have written a screed about my worries about inequality and race, and maybe it would have done well too. Um, maybe, maybe people would have picked it up who disagreed with me and looked up my political donations and would buy it anyway, maybe. But it was a story, and that's what I really wanted to do. I, it's been called a dystopian. Again, the Handmaid's Tale comparison. I never thought I was writing a dystopia. I wanted to write a, a story about our world pushed forward two or three inches, just enough to make it immersive and interesting with the hope that people fall into it and then come out on the other side and are like, that made me really uncomfortable. And then you ask why, because nothing in the book is really made up. What I made up is I made surrogacy facilities luxury. I made up some pieces of technology, which on a very separate note, I had in my DC event, someone came up to me and said, we're, I'm from a group of technologists who love your book. We read books to get ideas for business ideas. We got so many out of the farm. I was like, oh shit, because it's like kind of a social critique. It wasn't meant to be like a business plan for- They were not school. reading closely, is Honestly, all I have to say as an English professor. Was, I was, and then she went away and I was like, no, like take her down, that woman. Um, but uh, nothing, but except for that, some tech, I guess it might be real soon. It, it's all real. And so I've had many, many, many readers tell me the book made them feel cringy. I've had wealthier women who said to me, your book made me realize that maybe I didn't see our Mexican nanny of 12 years. And I've had kids of domestic workers, especially in one event in Toronto, many Filipinos there, tell me that they saw the clients in a better light. They'd kind of grown up hating their parents, bosses, and things. I don't know that they would have seen the other side with a screed. I just don't believe it. I think screeds get you armed and fiction can disarm. And so the divisions I wanted to explore were, were across all those divides that you talked about. But I thought that fiction was the best way to do it. And quite honestly, I only, I love fiction, so I wasn't gonna write a screed anyway. But I, I think it, it, I actually disagree with people who think fiction is kind of frivolous. I only read nonfiction and memoir because I want to learn something. I just don't buy it. But. Thank you. Can we give it up for our authors? So we're going to transition into an audience Q&A. So if you have a question, just feel free to raise your hand, and I'll come around with the wireless mic. Got one in the back. First of all, thank you for coming to Harrisburg. And I was wondering if, if you could each say a little bit about how you, or your path to just learning the craft of writing. I'm sorry, I didn't hear. I, it was um, how you came to learn the craft of oh. writing. I know, Joanne, you mentioned being a part of a writing group, but just kind of what, how it evolved. Um, how many people, how many of y'all are writers in the, in the group? Yay, writers. <laughs> also, yay, non-writers. Like, <laughs> yay, everyone. Um, <laughs> um, I feel as though the best thing, really, um, and this is such a, this is, I'll give you the boring answer first, and then I'll, and then I'll try to make it less boring. Um, but like, the boring answer is definitely just like reading, reading, and reading, reading. Um, it's, I, I, I think if it came to a desert island choice between writing and reading, like, I, I, I mean, it would kill me, but I would, I would still be half dead, but able to, but like I would still pick reading over writing. Like reading is my first love. That's how I, 
that's what how I thought of myself for a long time. Um, I didn't really start writing until until college. Um, but I read. Um, so when it's a bad year, um, when it's a year when I when my writing isn't going as well, then I'll read like 50 books in a year. Um, when it's a good year, um, I'll read closer to 100 books a year. Um, I keep these like very detailed um, Excel sheets of like like what I've been reading, and also um, is it by a man or, or is it by a man or a not man? Is it by um, a person of color or a white person? Is it by and it's like I I just keep wanting to diversify my mind um, because in so many ways I grew up with like Henry James and Edith Wharton and like Tolstoy were my favorite writers and I still fucking love them like I will read them until I die but all of my loves were um, I, I grew up I didn't read Korean I didn't read anyone who was Korean until after college which means that I essentially was obsessed with an art form in which I physically did not exist I could not have existed like I would never have been allowed into like Tolstoy's ballrooms you know um, so I'm always trying to like read a little outside of like what I what I grew up reading to the extent that I can um, can. Um, other than that, um, one thing that really helped me um, in working on this book for so long is um, is having um, people in my life who saw me as a writer, you know. And so whatever that means. So maybe it is finding a writing group. Um, I attended over the ten years. I attended. Um, I, I, I love applying to things. Like, I love applying to fellowships and grants and scholarships and residencies. Like, when I'm anxious and insomniac, which is most of the time, um, I, uh, I, it will often calm me down if I go online and, like, look for, like, more things to apply for. Because it's, like, it's, like, either free money. Well, like, a little, there's some work, but there's, it's either money or there, it's, like, space and time to write somewhere or whatever. So I applied to a lot of things. I got a lot of scholarships to conferences and places where I made a lot of friends who are also writers. Um, and so then, you know, you, the more, like, I had people in my life who saw me as a writer, even if I was eight years into it, and, and like, I had family members being like, what is her deal? Like, what is going on here? Um, just having that, that, that reflection that I needed helped a lot. Um, and for me, I've, I've always loved writing since I was a kid. I got my first diary after my first communion when I was six. I've always been writing, but I never thought of it as a career, and I don't know if that's an immigrant thing or a lower middle class thing and needing to make it, but I, it, I didn't give myself the permission to do that until my 40s. Um, I actually took one writing class at Princeton. You had to apply to get in, and I never told anyone this until I started going on book tour, but it popped out one day and I started crying, but I dropped out after four weeks. I was so intimidated by the kids there. They were from boarding school. They were from the schools my kids go to now, but at the time, I felt I didn't belong at that table, and I dropped out after four weeks, and, and I never wrote fiction again until I started writing The Farm. That being said, I always wrote emails. Um, my husband's joke is, he was in finance when I was in finance. He would email me, what's up? And I would write a 3,000-word email within five minutes because, one, I was unhappy in my job. And, but, two, I loved writing, and that was my outlet. So it wasn't fiction, but I was always writing. And I think the biggest thing is just write. It doesn't even matter. I, I, from my experience, which is one book, it doesn't even matter what you're writing because my practice came from writing those long emails when I was sad being in finance. Um, and then I got a job at The Economist, and that wasn't fiction, clearly, but it taught me to write in a spare way and to edit well. Um, but as far as fiction, the reason I signed up for the writing workshop is that I wasn't telling anyone because I was embarrassed to say that at age 40 I thought that I would start a new career. I just was like, I don't know why. I was embarrassed of it. And um, to, once I got the idea of the farm and had four or five chapters, I signed up for a six-week course. And it was great for six weeks because those people saw me as writers. Um, I signed up for another six weeks, and it wasn't good because at that point I already knew what I wanted to do, and 12 different people telling you what you should do when you're not quite secure in yourself, which I wasn't, was like, ah, like it was like being schizophrenic. It was um, not good. 
And most of the rest of the time, it was on my own. And slowly, as I got a little more, not, not even confident, but just I started having a body of work, I would have a few people that I really trusted read it. But it was mostly, it was honestly trial and error. I, I've never studied it. I've, I, it. I know what I was doing, but I've always been a reader. And I feel like I can tell when something's awful. Um, <laughs> and so then I would try to change that. But it was really a zigzaggy kind of way there. Any other questions? I have a question. There is a, there's a book coming out, and I, I believe it's February 2020. Um, I'm not sure of the author's name, but I believe it's being published by Catapult, and it's like advice on writing your first novel and like take- Courtney Mom. That's it, Courtney Mom. We're, we're gonna, I we're gonna get her here. <laughs> um, uh, uh, if you had, as debut authors, um, taking that framework of that, that book's uh, a goal in mind, do you have any advice for like debut authors or what one piece of advice would you give for that whole process? Um, something that helped me enormously and is, and is of ongoing help still is um, I was in a couple of different groups um, and so a couple of different email groups of people who had their first books coming out. Um, and those email groups were so helpful for so many things, ranging from like, I hate my cover, what do I do? Is everyone going to hate me if I try to fight on this? Um, to like, I don't know how to, um, I feel anxiety about like getting blurbs. Blurbs, if you don't know, are the, um, you know the little quotations you see on the back of, the, of every, every book with like other writers saying like, this book is amazing, it's the best thing ever. So those are blurbs. Um, and uh, I feel really anxious about getting blurbs. Like, what did y'all do? Like, what um, are you sending? Like, are you sending holiday gifts to your agent? If so, what are you sending? Just like it was like it was an email. These email groups are firing pretty much every day um, for months on end, and it's still a giant resource. Um, so I think just surrounding yourself with people who get what's going on, um, because it is so wild in that. Well, I guess this is the other thing I'll say. Um, I didn't believe this when anyone ever told me, um, so you may not believe it either, um, but I'm gonna say it anyway in case you're wiser than I am and you might believe it. Um, there is no external affirmation, no external validation. The joy of that has never begun to match, let alone exceed the joy of being there um, when you're writing and when you're deep in a sentence and you're just trying to make it the best version of itself you can be and, you know, and, and those moments when well, at least for me, I lose myself, I lose all sense of time, I lose all sense of like having a body, I forget to eat. Like That's the purest, best joy I know, and there's nothing like it that'll come from anything else. Um, when I, when I, so when, by the time somebody bought this book, um, my agent called me, um, I hung up, we talked for a bit, I hung up the phone, and it was with an editor I knew I respected, with a house I knew I wanted to be with, this was a moment I had fantasized about for eight and a half years, which is the point at which the book sold. Um, it was like the one thing I wanted from life. I mean, you know, like I also wanted like world peace and like stop <laughs> climate change, but like, but, like, but like for myself, for my own life, this was the one thing I wanted was, for the, for, was to publish a book. Um, and then I sat there and I like sat down on the bed and I like was staring off and I think I was genuinely happy for um, like 29 seconds maybe. I know it wasn't more than a minute because I was staring at a clock and the minute hand didn't change before a new wave of anxiety started crashing into me. Like, what am I gonna do now? Like, what does it mean to publish a book? Like, how am I gonna edit it? What am I supposed to do for this book? Um, 
And it's pretty much stayed the same for like the next like two and a half years. Like it, there wasn't, there, so in a way this sounds to me at first it can sound kind of dismal, like there's no joy at the end of the road. Um, but it, to me it feels like a solace because I know that the, the best part of the writing, the best part of all of this is within my grasp, you know? It, it's, it's, and it's not as though I get it every day, um, but if I keep showing up to the page, I know it'll come back. Um, and that's, and no one, I, I don't have to depend on anyone, anyone else for it. Um, I would say get on those distribution email things because I didn't know about that and I didn't know what I was doing when, when I went through it. So my, my advice would be, for me, it's just to keep persisting. Um, all that work for that year and a half or two years that didn't, that kind of I binned because I didn't really have the idea for the farm yet came, helped me, I think. It was practice at the very least and some of the notions and ideas fed its way into the book. So it's never wasted. Um, my friends who are painters say the same thing. They'll work on canvases and end up trashing it and then that's not a waste though, right? Because you're thinking and coming up with ideas and, and perfecting your craft. And, and I deeply believe there's craft before there's art. There's gotta be. And so just the persistence and the writing, for whatever that means to you. For me, it was two hours a day while my kids were at school before I became a house frown, did all the other stuff. Um, and then a much more like nitty gritty thing, I didn't, um, over the course of five years I wrote it, whenever I met anyone, like if I met R.O. and she said, my agent's pretty nice, I'd write R.O., met her in Harrisburg, nice agent. Or <laughs> my camp, my sleepaway camp friend is now an agent, whatever, I'd like sleepaway camp friend, agent. And so by the time I had my manuscript done, I had this list, a vague list, like not great connections, but a list of over a dozen agents where I could try to avoid the dreaded slush pile, which is this huge pile that your manuscript, and I picked the top five that I thought might like my book, and the top quite honestly the best ones because I read online that I should start with the best ones and as they reject me, go down the list. And, and I was just lucky. In a couple of days I got my first, whatever. Like it went really fast once I sent it out, but I never had to go in the slush list because I left, kept that list. So if you meet me tonight, say who's your agent and then you write down Joanne Ramos, nice agent, ICM. And then you have the start of your list. <laughs> Question to your left. Hi, you both talked about reading widely and how that's advice for writers is to read often. Are there any particular authors or books that really inspired you as you were writing? Um, one of my very favorites is, um, is Virginia Woolf, so much so that for, for a couple of years while I was, while I was working on this book, um, I would start each day, each writing day, with like a little bit of a book, I, one of her books. Um, and it, sometimes I would read maybe just a paragraph, sometimes a few pages, but what it would do for me, it was kind of, it felt the way, um, you know with acapella groups, how there's someone who sets the, who sets the pitch at the start? It felt like that. Um, uh, it would just like help like sort of tug me back into the world of my own novel. And I know you're wondering which of her books it is, um, and I, this is so ridiculous, but um, I love it so much that I feel afraid of saying its name in case she stops helping me, which I know doesn't make any sense, but um, and it's not, I mean, I know she's like super dead. Like it's not as though I believe she's like out there guiding me or anything. Um, but I think um, with some, it's so, it's so often so hard um, and it's so weird when like things work that I feel as though I just hold on to random ass superstitions for no good reason. Um, but anyway, it's one of her books um, and she was, she, was a, she was a real sort of guiding force for me. Okay, this is really weird because mine's also Virginia Woolf, and I also <laughs> would read a little bit of her, especially for the character of Reagan in my book, who um, her style's it's a little more lyrical, her, her, that, her sections. Um, and one that I discovered, I'd, 
I've loved her since before college, but one that I discovered when I was writing is her writer's diary. And the reason why is, I mean, she's clearly a genius. She will have passages where she's like, to the lighthouse, effectively, this is not verbatim. It's a piece of shit. I don't know what I'm doing. It's never, like, Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf didn't know if her, her work was good enough or would, like, had a bad writing day or, and, and just, I, I worship her, so the idea that she went through that too was so great. And then she'd have little riffs on like uh, having a shop and do this stuff for the house. And I'm like, me too, me too, Virginia. <laughs> so I love that. And she's even in her diaries, how she uses words and how her grasp of them and how she, she can make them do things was so amazing that it, the same, I would read a little tiny bit and then it would get me in. Oh, I love her diaries. Her diaries are yeah, so, good. so good. And they're such good company, yeah. Yes. Because she's, yes. she's, she's, uh, the writing is so beautiful and she's so stressed out and she's yes. just a really <laughs> so good company when, when, you, when, you're, when you're working on something. Yeah. We have time for one last question in the front row. Um, hi, I'm, I'm excited to buy both books now. So <laughs> thank you for coming to Harrisburg. I'm from Brooklyn and understand completely what you're describing with the nannies. Um, and my nieces and nephew were brought up by nannies, mm -hmm. so it's a near and dear topic. But so I'm married to somebody who's written a lot of books mm -hmm. as a man. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you feel about having written these books as a woman. Are, are they your babies? Did you give birth to them? How, mm -hmm. how much did you, it was two hours a day you said, but I'm sure there was a lot more mental energy right, yeah. than the two hours yeah. a day. So can you describe how that felt? I, I, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I'd always wanted to write a book, but never admitted to myself that I wanted to write a book. Like, I've always loved writing, but I always thought I had to pay my debts first and my college debt. And I did it. So, um, and I never really believed it would get published. It was just me and this thing I had to write for five years. And so when it's, came so quickly, I was mostly crying a lot. I don't know if it was birth, so maybe it was like birth. <laughs> um, because I remember hearing my husband talking to my three kids and they're like, we don't get it. Shouldn't mommy be happy? She got these agents and now it's, why is she crying all the time? I was just so overwhelmed by it. Um, and I don't know if birth is even the right metaphor for it, but it, it was a culmination of more than just a book. It was, I've started, to, when I speak now, I talk a lot about imposter syndrome and having to give yourself permission to do things, especially as a woman. Um, that may not be the case for all women. It certainly is, I'm sure, not the case for all women writers, but it really was for me to, to tell myself that I had the permission to tell a story um, as someone who's never studied it, as someone who's never really done anything with it for 20 years as far as fiction, as someone who's already in her 40s, as someone who's a housewife. I, I, um, that was what made me almost prouder than anything, and that my kids saw that, because I always told them that all along the way, they knew that what I, I was writing and that I was struggling between deciding if it was a hobby or a career, and why did I even need the label? I don't know, but I got anxious about that. Um, what else about being a woman, and what I, this is not really your question, but just because your husband is a male writer, I thought it was funny that I had to fight to not have my um, cover not be pink which I thought was frustrating. It was like one of their big books at Random House at Spring, and they're like, it'll just pop more, and you know, your market is women. I'm like, <laughs> and it was all women making that decision. It wasn't men. And so when they finally went back to the cover I wanted, which is a little darker, they're like, well, it turns out, we heard the women talking at one of the pre-publicity talks you gave, and it turns out they're really, re you're, 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 it's a funny book, but the, the deeper, darker themes are resonating with them too. I'm like, yes, women, women also <laughs> like deep themes, yes, and they like other colors and pink. It was shocking to me that it was women making that decision still today who still thought that. So that wasn't really your question, but to stick that in. Um, 
my one of my early versions of this cover also had some pink in it that I thought <laughs> to have taken off. Um, and and that's so interesting. Yeah. We should talk more about this. <laughs> I have to get on that email. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. I, I think when I'm writing, um, the closest analogy I can come to is um, I feel closer to being like a medium or a priest, and maybe this is the part of me that wanted to be a, a pastor. Um, I, I, the writing is happening best when I do not feel like the puppet master, um, when I feel as though they are, they are the ones in control and I'm merely putting things down on the page. Um, and I almost feel, even though I know this isn't right because it doesn't make sense, um, I almost feel as though there's an ideal shape and the book almost pre-exists me, and it is just my job to work my way toward it and to uncover as much of as much of itself as I can. Um, which um, so that's 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 sort of how I think about writing. Um, but, go, but to the question of being a woman um, and being a writer, um, let's see. I mean, there's there is so much um, that comes with being a woman. Um, I think it really helps to surround myself with really strong women. Um, to have women who, uh, we were talking about this a little earlier um, when we were back in the room, but um, to have women who, if I feel unsure about how I'm handling something, I can like text or email my friends and I'll just be like, what do I do like about this situation? If I say no, is everyone gonna think I'm a dick? Will my life be over? And I have uh, these women in my life who will say like, Jesus, Reese, like just say no, it's fine, it's fine. Um, and, and, and having those kinds of voices in my head, I actually use it in the like, so sometimes, especially in person, um, and I think this sometimes surprises people because um, in my nonfiction, I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty vocal about a lot of um, political things, especially things that have to do with gen gender and or race um, and or sexuality or God forbid, all of the above. Um, it tends to often um, come across as being as though like I have a, I'm very like self-possessed, but in real life, I have a lot of trouble standing up for myself. Like in real life, like if someone like, I don't know, cuts in line um, in, the, in, the, in the airport. Like I have trouble being like, excuse me, I was in line. Um, and so I have like two, three friends in mind who are both women. Um, and I think to myself, like what would Beth do? Because Beth would be like, you need to get the fuck out of my way. And I'm like, Reese, be Beth. And, and, then, and that really helps me to, to just like channel like other women who, who I look up to as being, um, as being much better at, 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 at moving through the world, I think, than I am. But. Can we give our authors another huge round of applause? Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, Reese. You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.